0: Hey there Faith Christian family, this is Ricky Watson, the guy behind the scenes who takes the pastor's message each week and pushes it out as a podcast. Today, we had a piece of equipment fail in the tech booth. Unfortunately, this caused us to lose the first few minutes of the sermon. So you join Pastor Larry for his latest installment of our vintage series already in progress. Thank you for understanding and God bless check this out. I want you to be fall in love with the scriptures because what's in there is so fascinating. So a little background before we get to today's crazy story. We're in a period of Bible history. We call the, Jew, the, the, the uh, Jewish history. We call the judges. This is about 300 year section of Jewish history. That's just pure craziness. They're the people, God's people, the Israelites people, Hebrew people are led by judges. They don't have a king, Because God says, here's what you need. All you need is this judge. They had no king but God. They had God's law, and God would appoint judges to help them keep the boundaries together, help kind of rule, make decisions for the people, and that's what this period of the judges is. The problem was this. Back then, people dealt with God's law the way we tend to deal with God's law today, and that is, "Eh, I hear it, but I want to do my own thing. I hear what you're saying, God, but does that really work for our world? And so there's this sin cycle that would begin to happen where people would God's people would begin to disobey God, which would inevitably lead to a disaster, a, a, just a nightmare situation for them. And then they would circle around because they're in the disaster. They would cry out to God because they're desperate. God, help us. God, help us. God! And God, as the king, would step in and deliver them but then they would do it all over again. Disobey God, disaster, cry for help, God rescues. Disobey God, disaster, cry for help, God rescues. This happens over and over again. Not that any of us can ever relate to that kind of behavior, right? (laughs) So many people in this nation, for so many years, this period of about 300 years of Jewish history, were stuck in this sin cycle. And the truth is, we know what that's like. Now a couple of weeks ago we talked about what do you do when you're stuck in this cycle of sin. Today what I want to talk about is what do you do when you see somebody else stuck in that cycle like that and you want to help but you're just not sure how. Here's what I know is true about every single one of us in the room. I know that you have a situation in your life right now that makes you uncomfortable. And you think, somebody ought to do something about that. But you don't think it should be you. Somebody's got to have to do, but you don't think it should be you. For some of you, this happens at work. There's somebody that works there in your office with you, and they continue to make unethical decisions, and you're bothered by it, you're frustrated by it, and somebody really ought to do something. Somebody really ought to say something about it, but it can't be you, right? You don't outrank anybody. You don't have any seniority. You don't know what to say. So you just kind of wait for somebody else to do something about it. For some of you, the situations with your kid's friends, and this friend of your kid comes over to the house and you listen to some of the things that they say and you know, you just know something's not right. Something's not right at home. Something's not right in their mind. Something's not right in their life. Something's gone wrong and you want to help. You're just not sure how. You don't want to be that meddling parent. You don't want to overstep your bounds, but you know something needs to be done. For some of you, there's an issue in our community. You see a homeless person on the street. You hear your kids, you hear about kids in our town that aren't sure where their next meal is going to come from. You see the, the effects of the rise of mental illness that people struggle with. And you think, i want to do something but i don't even know where to start but somebody somebody should do something but i don't think it should be me for some of you the issue might be at home or in your family there's a series of issues in your family in your house and your in your addictive family that just nobody ever talks about but you know they're there mom's addicted to painkillers dad's got an anger problem Your brother goes off and does all kinds of crazy stuff on the weekends, but nobody ever talks about it. We just just sweep it all under the rug, pretend like it's okay, but somebody should step up. Somebody should do something, but you don't think it should be you. You're not the oldest. You're not the favorite. So who's going to do it? Maybe for some of you, your issue is you used to be involved in in some stuff that, I mean, you thought it was harmless, and it was harmless when you started. Nobody got hurt, but now... Now people are getting hurt, and it's not so harmless. And you're beginning to think, somebody ought to put a stop to this. But you're also thinking, I don't want it to be me. I'm not the one. Every single one of us has an opportunity in our life to do something remarkable, something important. But the problem is, most of us, most of us think it can't be us. It needs to be somebody else. They're remarkable. I'm not. They need to do it, not me. Well, the story we're going to read today from the book of Judges and talk them through today, in this story, it involves God using three different kinds of leaders, three different types of people to get done what needs to be done and these three different types of leaders, they all step in, and together they make such a difference that it changes the course of history for God's people, and this, in this story about this judge by the name of Deborah, that's right, a woman was the judge, a ruler over God's people, you're going to see three different styles of leadership, and my guess is you're going to be able to identify with at least one of these styles. You're going to be able to relate to at least one of these styles of leadership when you look at your own life. And that's going to be your way that you can bring change to the world, that you can do something about it. Let me, let's, let's look at the story. Let's start, this is Judges chapter 4. I'm going to start reading it at, at, right at verse 1. So let's just kind of walk through this story together and see where we go. We're gonna have a lot of weird names and a lot of weird places here, so just bear with me. I don't, know how to, I don't know how to pronounce them either, so it's okay. So after Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. Ehud was one of the judges. He passes away. The Israelites once again get into this sin cycle. Sin, disaster, cry out Verse two, so the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazorah, a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in, I don't know how to say, Seth Hagoyim. Okay, it'll be different every time we get there. All right, Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots. Hold on to that for a minute. A 900 iron chariots ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Do you see the cycle? They've moved from disobeying to destruction. This guy, Sisera, is coming, and now what do we need? We, we're crying out to the Lord for help. We need a deliverer, and God hears their cry. Verse 4, Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at the time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. You've got to notice this. This is so important. You've got to see how counter-cultural this is and the way of God is especially back then in this ancient culture where women were viewed as property or possessions God sees women and uses women as leaders and he elevates Deborah to be the judge and the leader of his people And she sits out under this palm tree and she waits for the people to come to her and they have their issues, they have their their disagreements, they have the things they need guidance on and she gives them God's wisdom. God works through her to give the wisdom to the people and give them counsel and she leads God's nation. Let me say that again. This is so important that you hear these words. She leads God's nation. Here's what God does through Deborah, verse six. One day she sent for Barak, some of Abinanam who lived in Kedesh in the land of Naphtali. She said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel commands you. So she's giving a message straight to this guy, Barak, straight from God. Call out, call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor. And I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors to the Kishon River. There, I will give you victory over him. Do you see what she's saying here? Barak, go get the army. Get the army together, and you're going to go up and hide in the hills. I'm going to go down in the valley. I'm going to summon the enemy. I'm going to summon Sisera, the opposing general, and I'll have him come down to the river for a little meeting. It's like going to Camp David. We're going to have this little meeting... And you guys, when we get him down in the valley, you guys sweep in from the hills and wipe him out. And these 20 years of oppression, these 20 years of destruction in this sin cycle we're in, these 20 years will be over. This is a slam dunk. This is a guaranteed victory. God says, there's no way this is gonna go wrong. The Lord is with you. Notice Barack's response. This is a layup. This is an easy one. You're not gonna miss. This will not fail. This is fascinating to me. Barack tells her, I will go, but only if you go with me. This must have made Deborah just scratch her head. Are you kidding me? I just told you this was a surefire win. This is a layup. This is an easy job. You go down there, you wipe them out. You're the victor. You're the hero. This is a a culture that prides itself on honor. You're the hero. says, will you go with me? Maybe he's saying this, and we don't know why he says this. Maybe he's saying this because he's not convinced that she's telling him the truth. And he's like, all right, I'll go, but you gotta go first. Make sure this isn't some sort of trap. Maybe he's saying this because he feels like, you know what, we're a team, we're a nation, we're God's people, we're in this together. Or maybe he's saying it like, you know, maybe you would say in in, in modern vernacular, I serve at the pleasure of the president, and I want you to get the victory. I want you to get the honor as our leader. Whatever it is, This is not the sentiment of a William Wallace type, you know, the Braveheart type. This is not the kind of thing we make movies about because this is a very fearful, intrepid leader who's not really interested in winning the battle. Verse 9, "'Very well,' she replied. "'I will go with you, "'but you will receive no honor in this venture, "'for the Lord's victory over Cesaro "'will be at the hands of a woman.'" so Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh here's what she's saying that's fine I'll go with you but everyone's gonna know you're a mama's boy because we're going and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go there I'm gonna hold your hand but we're gonna get this thing done verse 12 when Cesar was told that Barak son of Abinadab, had gone up to Mount Tabor he called for all 900 of his iron chariots now they've told us this twice this 900 iron chariots they've said this twice which tells me this is important This is a big deal. These are not the little chariots that you think about when you think about the movie Ben-Hur where they're racing the chariots where one person sits in the back of them behind one horse. These are massive chariots where multiple warriors sit on them drawn by a team of draft horses or oxen or something. This will be the ancient equivalent of a tank. These are instruments, tools of war. These are weapons. And this guy has 900 of them and everybody is afraid of him. And now he has called them out. 900 of Zion chariots, all of his warriors, and they march from Herosheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River, and the battle is on. And Sisera finds out that Barak is going to be there, and they suddenly march in, and the battle begins. Verse 14, then Deborah said to Barak, get ready, this is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is is marching ahead of you. Wouldn't that give you such great confidence? To know that whatever it was you were facing, you were marching in, and God was marching before you, blocking for you as the running back, leading you. Wouldn't that give you such great confidence? God is going before you in this matter. So Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into battle. When Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sesera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic Seser leaped down from his chariot and escaped on foot then barak the chariots and the enemy army all the way to herosheth Hagoyam, killing all of cesara's warriors not a single one was left alive you see how this battle plan unfolds cesara goes into this battle with all his might all of his strength barak's people press down from the hills wipe out everyone but the leader cesara gets away it's kind of like the end of a great superhero movie, right? Where you think villain has been killed, but no, there's still that twinkle of life and he escapes so you know there's gonna be another movie, right? And so, so the enemy is still out there even though all his soldiers and all his tanks and all his equipment are gone. Verse 17. Meanwhile, Sesera ran to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because Heber's family was on friendly terms with King Jabon of Hazor. J.L. went out to meet Sesera and said to him, come into my tent, sir, come in, don't be afraid. What's interesting here is that Sesera thinks he's found a friend. He thinks he's found, found an, an ally. He thinks that because our families know each other. We've got a history. We used to do, you know, we used to do carpool together and had bookouts together. So suddenly I'm on friendly terms with these people because I, I see a familiar face. And he finds this tent off in the distance. So he runs off to this tent. Out comes J.L., this woman that he knows. He knows her family. She's standing at the entrance of the tent. And she says, come on in. Come on in. Don't be afraid. Let me just say, be afraid. (laughs) Be very, very afraid. She went into her tent. So he went into her tent. And she covered him with a blanket. Oh, you're tired. Let me get you a blankie covers him up real nice and cozy. He's just eating this up. Please, please give me some water, he said. I'm thirsty. So she gave him some milk from a leather bag and covered him again. This isn't like 2% or skim milk, all right? This is, this is probably more like yogurt in consistency. It's heavy duty. It fills you up. You know what happens when you get full, right? You get sleepy. She loads him up with the equivalent of a big turkey dinner with Benadryl gravy, all right? <laughs> she, she is wiping this guy out so he settles in with this nice warm blanket and this full belly he's gonna take a little nap so he says stand at the door of the tent he told her if anybody comes and ask you if there's anyone here just tell them no just tell them no I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take this little nap I'm, exhausted. I'm gonna take this nap so what is she gonna do is she gonna stand guard at the door is she gonna sing him a lullaby and rub his head till he falls asleep is she gonna pray a the hedge of protection over him we'll take a look what happens verse 21 when Cesera fell asleep from exhaustion jael quietly crept up to him with a hammer and tent peg in her hand you ready here we go then she drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground and so he died you think And so he died. I would think so. But don't be afraid. Come on in. Turkey sandwich? Come on in. She destroys the enemy. When Barak came looking for Sisera, Jael went out to meet him. She said, come here. I will show you the man you are looking for. So he followed her into the tent and found Sisera lying there dead with the tent peg through his temple. He is still pinned to the ground when Barak gets there and what's just absolutely brilliant about this passage is that she recognizes that Barak is the one that's looking for him and she says here he is i took care of this for you you wiped out the army i took out the leader you get the victory verse 23 so on that day israel saw god defeat jabin the canaanite king let me ask you a question who in this story is the most memorable character It's JL, right? It's the woman with the tent peg and the hammer. That's who you remember in the story. It's not Barack who led the army. It's not even Deborah who was a faithful judge for 20 years. It's this woman with the tent peg because that's what we remember the most. Because, I mean, naturally, we are drawn to the crazy. We're drawn to the wild, to the flashy stories. And thus, those are the kind of people that we remember the most. Now, think about this. This is not true of the story. This is true of everyday, everyday life. We are always drawn to what's flashier. Think about your car. I've got a fine car. I like my car. I kind of enjoy driving my car. It's not too fancy. It gets the job done, gets me from point A to point B. This last week, I got to drive a rental car in Southern California for a while, which is not the best place to drive, but I was still driving a rental car. Do you know what kind of cars I saw in Southern California? Do you know what kind of cars the people that live in Malibu drive? I saw Lamborghinis, Bentleys, twice, two times. I saw my dream car, the Aston Martin DB9, you know, James Bond's car those big Mercedes things that look like you should be on a safari not driving to you know to, to, to Trader Joe's uh, those big things um Porsches in Malibu Porsches are as common as pickup trucks are in Tuscaroras County they're everywhere so all of a sudden my nice sensible car looks so plain and so boring and so practical why because I'm drawn to the fancy car I'm, dr- I'm drawn to the shiny. We're all like this. We're always drawn to what's flashy. Here's where this intersects, your life and my life, and those problems that we want to solve, that we have in our worlds. We think about the issues in our life. We think about the, the things we know just aren't right in relationships, in the community, in our own homes. And we think, somebody ought to do something about that. And you know the reason why we don't think it should be us? because we're not Oprah, we're not Taylor Swift, we're not Bono, we're not Bill or Melinda Gates. And so go, because we don't have the resources and the power and and the audience and the flashiness, we think there's no way we could ever be a leader, there's no way we could ever do anything significant. But in this story, there are three different types of leaders and all of them have to do their part for this story to happen. And my guess is, you're one of these. Even though maybe for years you've thought you could never lead in any sort of way, you're one of these. Let me walk through them. The first type of leader is the flashy one, the heroic leader. This is the person who rises to the occasion in the heat of the moment. And in the story, it's J.L. with her tent peg. No one saw it coming, especially Cesare. And she wipes out the enemy general She steps up in such a heroic way I know that there are some of you out there that are like that You step up you rise to the occasion you see injustice you run towards it You see somebody hurting you run towards them. That's just who you are That's your leadership style if that's you lead well If that's you Here's what you need to learn from this though Be heroic, but be humble. Can I say that again? Be heroic, but be humble. Did you notice what J.L. does after she kills this general? She brings in the ranking officer and says, here you go, I submit to your authority. You get the glory. And if you are a a heroic type of leader that steps up and rises to the occasion, listen to me, God made you that way lead that way but do it with humility. Here's the second kind of leader that shows up in the story, the reluctant leader. In this story is this guy named Barak. We don't really know why he doesn't want to go alone into this battle that Deborah sends him on. We have our theories. I talked about a few of them, but he's not really interested at first in leading in this battle, but he does it anyway. He doesn't really want to but he doesn't. I know that sometimes for us when we are challenged to do something and we're hesitant, we seem to believe that that must be why we shouldn't do it because I'm hesitant. But if this guy hadn't pushed through his hesitancy, this story would not have happened. And if you are a reluctant type of leader, you need to do exactly what Barak did and that is to say, you know what? I'm not real sure about this, but I need your help. So ask for help, and then lead. Here's the third type of leader, the consistent leader, just constant in their presence. In this story, it's Deborah, the judge. For 20 years, she faithfully serves her God, she serves her country, She serves her husband and her family well. We read no crazy stories about Deborah, but just day in, day out, she sits underneath this tree and listens to people who come to her for advice, and she gives them wisdom and counsel from God, and she just remains faithful. And if that's the kind of person you are, you are still a leader, but you are a leader through your faithfulness through your consistency. So stay faithful. Even if nobody else does, you stay faithful. You know, when I think about this, I cannot help but think about the many people who have made Faith Christian Church what it is, that have faithfully served over the last 26 years to make us who we are. We've had all three of these types of leaders. And truthfully, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. One of the most constant and faithful leaders I know is my wife. She has to put up, well, with me, (laughs) she has to put up with the many times when we're with people, and they just want to tell me good things that they think I've done. And they want to kind of thank me for what I've said or what I've done for their lives and she has to sit there and just act like she agrees with them (laughs) and I see her over there biting her lip nearly bleeding but all the while I know that she's the reason I am who I am and her consistent quiet leadership in this church and in her career and in her family in our family that's just who she is. And it's been constant, and it's been faithful. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because no one ever recognizes you. Nobody ever points a finger and says, that was a heroic effort, good job. But you're a leader nonetheless, because of your consistency. Our world tends to take the flashy and make it take, take to takes the headlines. But in God's kingdom, it's the faithful, the consistent that changed the world. So let me ask you, when it comes to that situation in your world that you know somebody needs to do something about it, how about you? How about you decide that maybe you're not a heroic leader, but you can be a reluctant one or a consistent one? Or maybe you're not gonna lead like somebody else did, but you can still be faithful. Maybe your style of leadership is different than what we see on TV, but, but God uses those kinds of people to change the world so maybe maybe this week instead of us going out of the room wondering who's going to serve us who's going to do things the way we want to have them done how about we decide i'm going to serve you i'm going to pour my life into you i'm going to love better in my home in our schools in our neighborhood and maybe that's from a heroic style maybe that's from a reluctant style maybe it's from consistency but i'm going to be faithful <clears throat> because that is the kind of person that God uses to change the world. Let me pray for you. If our community team will go ahead and take their places. So God, will, will you use us, God? Whoever we are, whatever our personality type or style is, however it is that you find us today, will you use us however you want? And may we be faithful to you so that when it's our moment to lead, we will hear your voice and we will follow you and we can change the world. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to invite you to join me in a time of communion. The communion team's on their way around to pass out those emblems. Take a stack of those cups out of that tray as it comes by your seat. Hold on to those for a moment. We'll share this time of communion together. That one cup, of course, has the bread in it and the other, the juice. These are emblems, symbols symbols, that remind us of the body and the blood of Jesus. There's a, a great mystery when we come to communion and that somehow these simple things become the body and the blood of Christ. We become one with the body and the blood of Christ. That's why we do this. That's why we, each week here at Faith Christian, we take a moment in our service to celebrate communion together, to eat and to drink, to participate. What a great word to participate in the body and the blood of Christ. We believe when we do this, we are uniting our lives with the body and the blood of Jesus. We're reminded of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We're reminded that that our sins are forgiven. We are reminded that we have an abundant life so we can do what God needs us to do. We also participate in communion together because I believe that when we do this, it unites us with one another. Because we're not in this alone. Even though we may have different leadership styles, different personality types, we are together, a family. And so we serve together. We love our community better together. If this is new to you, you can take a pass on it. You do not have to participate. But I want to invite you now to join us as we participate in the body and the blood of Christ. We share together in this time of communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, as he gathered in an upper room with his disciples to celebrate Passover. Jesus took bread and he broke it. He passed it to them and said, take and eat. This is my body, which has been broken for you. Then Jesus took a cup, prayed a prayer of thanksgiving over it, passed it to them and said, take, drink. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. The body and the blood of Christ for the people of Christ.